I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the master's program. Gregory Favor is the Deputy Director and Chief of Operations for the Missouri Department of Public Safety. We met at the Bolger Center in Potomac, Maryland, where we were both participating, along with other NPS alumni and academics, in an ethics curriculum development workshop. Greg considers himself an adult learner and sought out the NPS program because of its prestige in the world of homeland security. But admittance to the program did not come easy. He applied four times and definitely earned his spot in the program. Tom Nichols is Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. In February 2017, his article in Foreign Affairs, titled How America Lost Faith in Expertise and Why That's a Giant Problem, described a study where a broad sample of Democratic and Republican primary voters were asked whether they would support bombing Agrabah. Agrabah may sound somewhat familiar to parents with kids that watch Disney movies. It's the fictional country in the film Aladdin. Experts in national security couldn't fail to notice that 43% of Republicans and 55% of Democrats polled had an actual, defined view on bombing a place in a cartoon. Nichols goes on to say that it's not that people don't know a lot about geography, science, or politics. It's that Americans have reached a point where ignorance is seen as a badge of honor. Rejecting the advice of experts demonstrates independence from elites and insulates their fragile egos from ever being told they're wrong. This theme is central to Greg's research. You'll hear him talk about his definition of anti-intellectualism, why some choose to be uninformed, and the ethical imperative Homeland Security practitioners have to introduce facts and multiple points of view related to a complex issue when discussing them with senior leaders. You begin your research with an observation with decision makers today, and and you say, and I'm quoting, wide swaths of people are ill-informed about complex issues. And you refer to this as anti-intellectualism. So describe what that is in more detail. The willful, uninformed position that people take because it is more comfortable to explain an ideology or the way they wish the world works as opposed to how it actually is. We see this in tech. We see this in science. We see this in politics. It is pervasive to all different things. And it can largely be broken out into to denialism, which is, I don't believe you. Um, scientific apathy, which is, yeah, I know global warming is probably happening, but there's nothing I can do about it. The way that we think about complex problems in this country, and this is not just specific to homeland security or national security issues, is often muddied by competing viewpoints when most of the time in the public space, they are given equal weight. Right, So you'll have somebody on a, on a crossfire type of program, and you'll have somebody who is pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine. And the pro-vaccine will be a physician or a chief medical officer or a scientist or a, you know, some sort of decorated expert in this, in this particular field. And then you'll have, um, and I'm not picking on her, like a celebrity like Jenny McCarthy or a, a parent who has been influenced by Jenny McCarthy or something down the line. And it's, it's almost given to the public as like a one-to-one face value. These are not one-to-one correlations on the value of information that these people are giving you. So if people want to continue to exist in this in environment of unknowing, how do they make more informed decisions on big issues in their life if they're choosing to not get more information? So I looked at it specifically from a Homeland Security practitioner's viewpoint 
giving options to uh, policymakers. And what I worked on is how do we present as practitioners options to bosses and leadership that that cut through some of the rhetoric. And the argument really is is threefold. One, we have a moral obligation. If you consider yourself a practitioner of public safety in any aspect, you have a moral obligation to do what's right by your fellow human. And that is not sweeping research under the rug. That is not um, discrediting 97% of a scientific consensus on a deeply studied topic because your mayor or city councilor or governor or president believes a certain um, way on a certain issue. You can't just sweep that stuff under the rug. We have an ethical obligation uh, to do this. And these, these kind of blur the lines a little bit between morals and ethics. But um, again, there is an ethical obligation to do what is right, even when doing what is right is, could lead to disrepair of your reputation. You know, Marcus Aurelius talked about doing what is right, even when it is difficult. What is right is right, whether it's good for you or not. And, and you, have a, you have an obligation to take this on. And then the final, the final kind of solution to how the practitioner would approach this with a boss is that we are growing increasingly more complex. And we are driving systems of things that are becoming um, so convoluted that if we get too far down this rabbit hole without somebody sticking the flag up and going, hey, we have a real issue on our hands here. We, we can't best serve the population that we've been charged with serving. We have to stand up and kind of say, from a, a practitioner standpoint, this is what the landscape is. And I know you wish it looked like this, but it is actually like this. And we need to decide where we want to go on this trail and not hope that a new trail just suddenly materializes. You referenced an article written by Isaac Asimov 40 years ago. And then you also talk about a reference by Hofstadler in the early 60s. It appears that this apathy has been going on for decades. Why has this been going on for so long? So uh, Hofstadler Hofstetter kind of wrote the preeminent piece on this. He came up from the 1930s, kind of up through McCarthyism, and he was the one who wrote a very apolitical, look, here's how it manifests itself, here's what it looks like in practicality, and he, and he made the claim that it is cyclical. Susan Jacobsby, who is a little bit, uh, who is not as politically uh, nonpartisan, she definitely has a slant to her writing, and her argument is that Hofstetter was right, it is cyclical, but the cycles are coming faster and more and longer now. Uh, as a guy who has given a lot of speeches, as a guy who's written speeches for senators and governors and stuff like that, I, I, I look often at how answers are crafted. One of the most telling things that, that people do to separate themselves from intellectuals, the politicians do, to separate themselves from intellectuals, and this is a shout out to, to David and Anders, um, is they create in-group, out-group dynamics. If you look at Scott Walker, if Jeb Bush, if Paul Ryan, all of them say when asked about climate change, look, I'm not a scientist. They're creating distance from themselves and what is often seen as like an elite class of people, right? Like, I'm just like you. I'm just at the diner and I know that it still snows in the winter and it still gets hot in the summer. So this whole clot, like, I, I know you're not a scientist. I know that you're the governor of Wisconsin. But what I hope that you have is really good people giving you really good guidance going, here's a seminal study from the seven leading world academies on science, and here's what it says. And I know that you wish it was X, but are we going to talk about this issue? One other example of this is Jade Helm, uh, which was a, a, a special forces eight-week 
across several states. It was a domestic training exercise that happens all of the time. The conspiracy theorists drove the idea that this was the actual start of martial law, that the special forces were going to come in and they were going to take over Texas. And when they were done taking over Texas, they were going to systematically move across all of these states and, and put people into essentially concentration camps. It sounds unbelievable, right? I mean, when, when you and I sit here and we talk about this, this got to the point where the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs had to make comments on it, right? This, it had to be rebuffed in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And in all of these cases, celebrities like Chuck Norris, like all of these people who were asked to comment on this impending martial law takeover, all were very clear to create dynamics within their answers that separated themselves from the elites and put themselves in the camp of the ordinary person. Um, and so it's really interesting how they draw these, these disconnects between who you should be afraid of and them and their group. And it's, it's really a fascinating study in like language, and it is what helps shape and, and manifest all of these different theories. If people aren't trusting the experts, mm-hmm. what impact does that have when the experts are actually trying to give them direction right. for something? Right. It's significant. I mean, it's significant. And I, I, I go back to the vaccines on this. There, there may come a time, and, and it's really easy to cherry pick a lot of the more ridiculous, sensational anti-intellectualism. Like, my favorite statistic in the thesis is that 72% of the country can name the Three Stooges, but only 42% can name the three branches of government, right? Some of, these, some of these issues, like talking about climate change and vaccines and stuff like that, have very real, very serious consequences, and not in five years, not in 10 years, not in 20 years. If a pandemic happens today, so I, I can't remember exactly what the level of trust is in the government's recommendation to uh, vaccinate your kids, but it... I don't believe it's over 50%. And what happens when we have a pandemic event and we have a strategic national stockpile that's actually put into play? And uh, it is not easy or it is not difficult to draw a correlation between people's attitudes on getting a vaccine that would save their kid's life just long term coming up versus more acutely. Uh, we talk about climate change, and I, I find it really interesting the political pushback on climate change when. Our own military has said this is a significant issue. I believe there's been 40 some odd reports across all of the branches of the military, across DHS, that has said this is going to be bad. Like when people don't have the same access to water, they tend to start killing each other. And so this is going to impact genocide. It's going to impact food growth and literal population migration is going to occur based on what is happening with climate change. And so there's all of these things that are, that are multi-billion dollar investments in our security that we know is happening. And at the highest level of policy, we can't get people to publicly say, like, this is significant. And I'm not sure I believe it yet, but I've seen some pretty compelling data. And I'm going to ask my team to get into this and have a report in the next 90 days. The world is becoming an increasingly complex place. And change is occurring at an exponential growth, which as humans, we have a hard time grasping yes. just how quickly things yes. are, are going to change. And, and which we've not had to deal with, right? Like people's like they're what I'm sorry, I don't mean to catch up. One of the arguments in, in climate change is, well, if it is happening, humans will adapt. Like that's not how evolution works. And we are 
we are sitting at the dawn of a new epoch in terms of what we're going to experience as humans. Our exponential curve of where we've gone in the last 50 years, evolution will not keep up with. This is not something that will just like happen. We could lead to our own demise. And people think that like, well, we've made it this far, we'll figure it out. That may be true intellectually, that is not going to be true biologically. If denialism is a response to a loss of control, and this scientific apathy is coming from information over stimulation, two things you talk about, mm -hmm. are more people going to be going down this path of literacy because they feel, I, I can't do any more? Then what? So are they going to go path, down the path of illiteracy or literacy? If, if they are so overwhelmed with all the information that's coming their way, mm -hmm. if they're, is that going to push them further into this sense of denial, denialism, and remaining in this illiterate state because they just can't deal with the information coming their way? That is, that is certainly a fear. Science has been kind of the bastion of the elite for a long time, whether it's the academies, whether it's higher ed, these things have been closed off to the average person. And it has been expected that because I've devoted my life to this, I am special in this area and you should just listen to me. That is an old model that has served science for a long time. It is also not the way forward for science as a discipline. Science has plenty of its own failures. And we actually talk about that, that in the thesis. I mean, there's confirmation bias, there's a monetary incentive to be the first to discover. Science is far from having a pure dogma. There are also a ton of catch-alls in science to be able to say, hang on, wait a minute, I think you're lying, and go back and you know, replicate the stuff. That's how they, that's how they uncovered the um, uh, falsification of the data that led to the vaccine crisis, right? The guy actually falsified his, his study and has led to I don't know how many deaths based on you know, his desire to carve out something new. He was a scientist who blatantly failed the general public. As, as practitioners, we need to work with scientists and experts in whatever the field is to find ways to make this tolerable and understandable and palatable to the average person. Uh, you know, one thing I often remind my team and I ask them to remind me of is how do we explain this to the soccer mom who is going to get 40 seconds of this on the evening news? I know this is our ninth meeting on it, I know that we know all the acronyms and a bunch of people in the room. How do we actually communicate the good that we're doing or the risk that is on the horizon to the person who is walking by the office right now? What is the elevator pitch that gets people to buy into what we're saying? And they go, oh, for real? Oh, what do you guys suggest? Right? Like that is, that is, a, that is, a, that is a question for Homeland Security practitioners and it's a question of the scientific community in these issues that are, that are science-based. It, is that the only thing that is available to us is simplifying the messaging, not dumbing it down, Make, making sure that, that we are acknowledging the individual who is receiving it. We're not speaking to them as if yes. they're illiterate. Correct. And it's making sure that, that they know why this is an important thing. What else can be done? You know, uh, in, addition to, in addition to like the one-on-one -on -one direct messaging, I also think that there is an argument for civic engagement, and this could be a podcast in and of its own self, right? But I love the CERT program. CERT teams are not especially valuable for really complex technical rescue things, but it gives you an entire cadre of people who is willing to step up for their community in the event that something happens. And I think that's really cool in a time where 
largely our, our civic institutions, whether these are religious-based or VFW halls or Boy Scout troops or whoever, are continuing to see, our volunteer fire companies continue to see declining numbers because of all of the other things that take our attention. So anything that engages people like in a civic nature is actually really cool. I don't know that you could have a cadre or core of people that go out and like tackle climate change, but we could design a curriculum that is maybe part of high school or part of a, a way to qualify for certain college scholarships that puts a little bit more uh, civic mindfulness and what your role and responsibility is into curriculums out there to reach a population that maybe didn't grow up with it the way that our parents did or our grandparents did where uh, there was a flag on every porch and there was like there was the lingering of shared sacrifice post-World War II of we're all going to kick in and do our part. Like all of that has kind of washed itself downstream and, and we don't have that to the, the level that we did post-World War II. And I think, I think that would be beneficial because people would be more engaged in their own security. They would take more interest in their own future and not uh, expect social media or the talking head on the news or a practitioner like me to just decide their fate. So an active and engaged public is certainly good to the long-term lifeblood of a republic. Anything we can do to further that end would certainly be great. What is one of your best memories of the NPS program? As our class marched into the auditorium for graduation, playing Anchors Away, it was such a cool feeling for me, having been told no a bunch of times. And it kind of codified all of the times that I had spent in the Trident Room with interesting, smart, courageous people, looking at plaques of interesting, smart, courageous people and astronauts. And it codified what a special experience this is and how few people actually get to take part in the full kind of master's experience at, at a place like NPS. It, it really was kind of a touchstone for me of, holy cow, we did this, right? Like that, that, was a, that was a really cool moment. The second thing that I would say is that the area of Monterey is just so cool and so conducive to intellectual conversations and discovery and general fraternity and camaraderie. The collective sum of sitting with smart people in the Rose Garden and drinking bourbon and talking about why they were wrong or um, being in Big Sur, uh, drinking wine and, listen, and being told why I was wrong or, um, you know, being, being out on a hike with a professor and him explaining, hey, remember we talked about group theory? Like, actually look what these guys and like would actually show you what they presented in class happening in nature as you're literally walking around uh, Point Lobos. So just the collective continuity of what that place does and the ability, at least for me, in a high-pressure job to basically come and check out for two weeks and just think about things and talk to interesting people was something that was really valued. And it also shows me I need in my life. And, and since NPS, I've actually gone on to do some other things that have never quite lived up to NPS, but they are in the same vein, because NPS showed me how important that is to my own intellectual stimulus and my own development as a person. Do you have any other recommendations for prospective NPS applicants? I would say knowing what I know now about the program and knowing what I know now about the issues facing our world from my thesis, we don't need more tacticians. It is a place where you can deep dive into things. I didn't know anything about philosophy or ethics 
before I started this project. This was a journey for me. This was me exploring the space and figuring out like, I think there's something here, but how do I kind of map this out and make this make sense of what I believe is true? Let's see where the research takes me. If you are doing a project that anybody else could do at almost any other place, you're not taking full advantage of the NPS experience. I would say to think outside of your profession, which is difficult for a lot of us in public safety, right? I mean, a lot of public safety is tied to your identity. I know for a long time mine was. I'm super proud to have been a St. Louis firefighter. It is, it is the greatest honor of my life to have worn the badge that is esteemed as that organization is. It also doesn't define me solely as a person. And that that doesn't always happen in public safety. We tend to get wrapped up in our self-identity being connected to who we are as a person. That is not true for NPS, and it shouldn't be true for your studies there. After we finished the interview, Greg reiterated what an honor it was to participate in the NPS program. The program is hard, but the professional and personal dividends, he said, will exist for years to come. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Greg Favor's thesis, The Ethical Imperative of Reason. For more information on this research, visit the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Anti-Intellectualism. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future Homeland Security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. For information on the Master's, Executive Leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.